0: If you can imagine, if you would, Grand Cayman conquering, governing, and running Uruguay. All of Uruguay. Or, or, or maybe an American state like uh, Mississippi or Arkansas. All right? We take up arms. We travel to Uruguay. We're invading. We're coming in, guys. Here we come. It's a population of about two and a half, almost three million people. Same with Arkansas and Mississippi, although they may be less assembled there. Not sure. Now, we still have two cannons that uh, used to be in the Georgetown Fort. Sure, we have that, as well as uh, visits every year from American and British naval vessels. That could help. Still, to conquer Uruguay or Mississippi may seem a little bit absurd. This would be historically similar, though, to the tiny Greek city-state named Sparta, once conquering and governing all of ancient Greece. Greece. Enjoying all the associated spoils by a small population. Overcoming all odds. Getting all this, accumulating all this wealth for themselves. Except that the prosperity they experienced, having conquered all of Greece, also led to their demise. Sparta had long been world famous as a military society. It got the most out of its people resources. If you were a dude who grew up in Sparta, you had everything you could give extracted out of you. Such a young age, age seven, boys fit for it began training in the obedience and discipline that would continue for the rest of their lives. Seven years old. How many of you guys have kids that are around seven? Right, a few of you. Can you imagine? Okay, I'm sending you off. You will now be in military training for the rest of your life. They were isolated, taught to fend them themselves, except no handouts from others. Nothing. In fact, they were even encouraged to steal from local farmers, just so they could do it, just so they wouldn't get caught. There's some famous stories about this. In fact, one boy who actually was caught by the farmer, but let a live, wild fox stay in his coat while explaining to the farmer he had stolen nothing. Tough. The most famous moment probably in Spartan history was the Battle of Thermopylae, where Xerxes of Persia wanted to see this famous Spartan army, but not because of fear. After all, he was confident in victory. His group of Persians outnumbered the Spartans 10 to 1. Just out of curiosity, the famous Spartan men. King Leonidas took his 300 Spartan men standing shoulder to shoulder in the phalanx formation. Almost won. Amazing. Just one year later, they would lead the Grecian charge to decisively defeat the Persians where they had once lost. Within a couple more generations, they conquered Athens, the biggest city, biggest city state in all of Greece. And then finally, they ran the entire Grecian world. So what happened next, you might guess? On to Asia? <laughs> See if there's an America? No, no, they, they relaxed. They finally relaxed. Military officials, parents... Began training boys at older ages. They didn't subject themselves to the same dog-eat-dog training growing up. So, led to the decline, the demise of ancient Sparta. Defeats in battle increased. Independence apart from uh, Greece was established until one day, Sparta became a sideshow. A place to go to see. Like, oh yeah, let's go look at the famous Spartans. Just for play, to buy a ticket to see them. Of course, the takeaway for us in all this is this. We've seen this with almost, tons of societies that have come and gone in the world's history. Adversity assisted generosity, and prosperity was their affliction. The Spartans were generous in trust. They, tr- they trusted this, this plan of discipline, of arduous asceticism. They were fearlessly sacrificial in protecting the people. They had a fierce commitment to one another. They didn't want to let down their brother standing right next to them. So they were generous towards society, towards one another. However, once the enemies were subdued, there was no more fighting. They were standards. A culture of peace time started to infiltrate their world that left them vulnerable. Adversity led to generosity. Prosperity became their affliction. The Bible has a couple of famous examples of this. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, the poor widow she's put in more than all of them for the wealthy all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on we also remember luke or sorry uh, 2 corinthians chapter 8 which we really immersed ourselves in in february begins by saying though the macedonian church had been going through much trouble although they've been going through much hard times Their wonderful joy and deep poverty have overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did so out of their own free will. We've been looking, guys, at uh, different characters in the Bible who chose to dive in and just sort of ride the wave of divine generosity, experiencing God's great generosity and promises and love towards them, and then being free to be generous with others. So the first week we looked at Abraham's adventure, and through Abraham's adventure, savers amongst us were challenged. Those who are tempted to save up as much time, as much talent, and as much treasure as we can, because we worry about our future. And Abraham's adventure challenged us in that. Then last week we looked at Boaz's adventure, in which those of us who are blessed exceedingly learn how to best bless blessers. To best bless those who are blessers, those who give of themselves, how can we bless them like Boaz did towards Ruth? And we thought through ways we could do that. And hopefully this last week you applied your homework. You not only blessed someone, you prayed with them, you opened yourself up to them further to God and what he might want to do in terms of blessing their lives. Today is David's adventure. David who experienced adversity and gave most generously in the midst of it, but was most afflicted by prosperity. In his adversity, he was trained. God was training him to give out of that, out of trust, out of joy. But when prosperity came along, he was afflicted by it. Something he came, by the way, to terms with only at the end of his life. These are his own words, by the way. Listen to this, since apparently the screen's not working. Psalm 30, verse 6. David's own words. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. I said in my prosperity, nothing will happen to me. I'm okay. Nothing's ever going to touch me. The challenge this morning, the challenge is for those of us who cannot yet handle prosperity. You want the good life. And what's the best Christian life? To be honest, sometimes what do we really want? We want the to know Jesus, but we also want to know comfort and ease, don't we? If we could just have both, that would be the ideal Christian life. My hope this morning is that some of us here might admit that you have a prosperity problem. And you'll start applying the antidote for it. And there's a good one for it. Because God loves you. He wants to help you. He wants to grow you. So if you have a prosperity problem, don't fear. There is help through Christ, okay? So first, we're going to briefly review David's life of generosity that flowed from adversity. We're going to ask the question then, do I have a prosperity problem? Finally, we're going to apply the antidote. So first, generosity flowing from adversity, this is David's life. David experienced, King David, the most beloved, particularly, probably important king in all of Israel, he experienced three types of adversity which drove him to rely on a generous God and in turn be generous towards others. Three types of adversity. He first experienced a sovereign, what I'll call a sovereign adversity. This is the kind of adversity you don't choose, but God chooses for you. The kind you said, I would never think of that God. I would choose the opposite. But thankfully, I'm not the parent. You are. This is sovereign adversity. There's so many examples of this in David's life. I'm just going to mention one. And it involves being generous towards an enemy with their life in your hands. God chose David to be king. The current king, Saul, was jealous, so he tried to kill David. You can understand, his, not only his own reign, but the, that of his family after him was being threatened. So David fled. When you get a spear thrown at you, it's time to leave the palace. Right? So David, he flees. He goes to live in caves. Saul and his army hunt him down, and along the way they take a pit stop. Saul makes his way into a washroom, a.k.a. cave, all right? And there the Bible says he quote-unquote relieved himself, Uh, and I'm quoting the Bible on that, Uh, right next to David. He didn't know it. Goes into a cave, does his thing next to David, and David's men are whispering to him, David, this is your chance. The man who's been trying to kill you is hunting you down. Like you're his tiny little prey. You can just strike up right now. He's vulnerable. David says, no, I'm not going to do it. It is wrong to kill God's anointed. That's for God to take care of in his timing. So he cut, just cuts off a little piece of Saul's robe, just as a little souvenir. And Saul walks outside. David runs after him and says, hey, Saul, Saul. And he, and he David, who just spared his life, humbly bows on the ground and says, The Lord gave you today into my hand, but I spared your life because you're the Lord's anointed. You can read this, by the way, in 1 Samuel chapter 24. If You want to write that down? you You don't get to choose the moment when your boss's superior asks you to evaluate his performance. Or that moment when you finally get to take credit that he has long taken in your stead. But when you rely on a generous God With his livelihood in your hands, you can be generous towards him or her. You can have the strength to be kind, to be generous yet fair. You don't get to choose when a mom who's hurt other moms, including you, with her words and maybe some things she said behind y'all's backs, says to you bluntly, you know, I kind of get the feeling, if I'm going to be honest with you, that people don't like me. Uh, You know, what am I doing wrong? And as you have that moment, To speak into her life. As you rely on a generous God in the affliction of someone being unkind towards you, you're ready to seek her good. To not overwhelm her with comments about what she needs to work on. But give her a couple things. Along with a big dose of patience because God's been patient towards you. So that's the first kind of adversity David gets, and we often get our own license, that sovereign adversity. Adversity we wouldn't choose on our own, but God uses to help us rely on him. Second type of adversity David experiences is self-inflicted adversity. These all occur, guys, after David had arrived. What do you think that meant? That meant after he took on that throne, put on that robe, held on to the scepter when he was king. Now that he was king, obvious adversity. That conspicuous, right-in-your-face adversity had ceased. But a couple things began to happen. First of all, he ceases to be generous in the workplace. Once he's king, once the obvious sovereign adversity is gone, he ceases to be generous in the workplace. See, kings led armies. No matter how big or how prosperous your nation was, you led the army. You were the commander-in-chief. You're in charge. But David figured he'd gotten big enough so big that he could delegate that out. With more leisure time on his hands, his eyes started to wander to a lovely lady, witnessing her bathing on the top of his roof. You can read about that, by the way, in 2 Samuel 11. So he delegates someone to bring her to him so he can know her. Right? He could commit adultery with her. She gets pregnant. So then he delegates for someone to put her husband on the front lines of the battle, so that he would have like kind of a 95% chance of dying. Death sentence. Isn't it interesting? David, in a moment of weakness, even delegates sin. (laughs) He sends people, will you help me to get her so I can commit adultery? Will you help me so this guy can get killed, which is her husband? After nine months, he's finally confronted with his failure, he goes to God, and he gets generous again. He gets generous again. Prosperity then comes back to him and ensues, but David cannot handle it. So he's not only ceases to be generous in his workplace, we find he ceases to be generous with his family. His eldest child, Amnon, thinks his sister is pretty. I know these are a lot of kind of not fun stories, all right? But he thinks his sister is pretty. He's rich and entitled. He's just the son of a king. He must have her. So he does against her will. And when another Of David's sons, Absalom, hears about it, and he's infuriated. This is his sister. And he promises Tamar Hey, something's going to be done about this. This is not about you. Don't get this has nothing to do with your self image. Don't get depressed. And he basically says this to her in the Hebrew language something will happen. So he goes to his dad. His dad is furious, but does nothing. You can read about this in 2 Samuel 13. Absalom bides his time for a couple of years, makes a plan, gets revenge, kills Amnon, and then runs into exile in what are called cities of refuge. David grieves because now he has two lost sons as opposed to one, one who is dead and one who is as good as dead, having fled. What does he do? He does nothing about it. In fact, a woman hired by his military officer, his chief military officer, has to confront him and ask him the question, why is the king not devised a way so that his banished son might not remain banished from him? David's like, good question. I haven't thought about that in the last months. So David brings him back. But he doesn't allow him into his presence. It kind of brings him back, but you have to say a few miles away, David passively parents for his own peace. How many parents have done that? How many of us know this? Especially us dads who love to have peace, circumstantial peace. Please, the noise, the trouble when I get home. David passively parents for his own peace and Absalom would seek to end his dad's life as a result. And he successfully takes his dad's throne from him. David realizes his error, repents, relies on God. After returning to Jerusalem, retake his throne, he he generously forgives everyone, every traitor who had taken Absalom's side in rebelling against him. So see, he gets generous again. Affliction relies on God. Gets generous again. David's final sort of self-inflicted adversity. He ceases to be generous with God. God had promised Israel they'd be numerous as the stars in the heavens. But sitting around one day, again in prosperity, that wasn't enough for David. Desiring to pad his sense of security, he wants to count up his army, feel better about himself and his future. So he orders for his chief military officer to take a census. God was very upset with him for his failure because God knew his heart. It was a failure to trust his promise to Abraham that God would give him as many as the stars in the heavens, Israel, he gets to choose his punishment because David has failed to trust. David chooses pestilence or a disease straight from the hand of God. And we read in 2 Chronicles 21, 70,000 men died. 70,000 men. Because David refused to trust God instead. Pat his sense of security. To make sure his future was secure. David grieves. He says, was it not I, God, who gave the command The sheep, what have they done? So he pleads with God. He sees somehow in this vision the angel of the Lord stay his hand. So he goes towards the angel of the Lord. Remember, this is a generous act on David's part. He goes towards the death angel. This is the angel who is sent upon the people a pestilence as the 70,000 people die. He goes towards him at the threshing floor of a farmer. He buys the threshing floor. He makes a sacrifice there and God relents. He generously risks his life. He gives of his treasure After recognizing his own self-inflicted adversity, he gets generous again. And after this third time of lives lost due to his own tight-fisted self-servingness in the midst of affluence, David finally realizes he has a prosperity problem. So right there at the threshing floor of Ornan, David volunteers for a different kind of adversity. He volunteers for one. It's a voluntary adversity. He makes and immediately begins participating in a God-sized plan that has built-in adversity in it. He has tried and tried and tried to to handle what many call blessing, right? An increase in treasure. Obvious talents on display. More leisure time for oneself. That's what we all want, right? Along with being Christians. But prosperity has been to him an affliction that suffocates generosity. Generosity. So let's ask ourselves and be honest here. Do I have a prosperity problem? Ask yourself this question. If you're willing to go there. Do I have a prosperity problem? I want to be up front about this. Your immediate answer will probably be biased. All right? It will be biased. Mine was. uh, You will want every part of your being to answer no because nearly every Christian living in and around affluence desires what I like to call the Carrie Underwood Christian life. All right? The Carrie Underwood Christian. Who here knows who Carrie Underwood is? Raise your hand. I'm going to explain a little bit who she is if you don't know. Carrie Underwood is a very famous lady. Uh, She seems to genuinely love Jesus. And has stood for him. She's singing at some of Hollywood's biggest stages, singing Amazing Grace, How Great Thou Art. Have you guys heard some of that on YouTube? Some of you guys have seen. You actually sent me the link. All right? She's incredibly generous as well, generous toward underprivileged With her time and her talents, she sings for and gives to Christian schools, animal rights, and her own impoverished hometown in Oklahoma. On top of that, she's also beautiful. All right? I don't mind saying that. I cleared this with my wife. All right? She's beautiful. Not as beautiful as my Katie. We know that. She's beautiful, blonde, all right, at the top of her field professionally. She's wealthy. She travels the world. She's married to a professional athlete who's also a Christian and looks like a Greek god. All right? And she just had her, ch- her first child a couple weeks ago. All right. Meanwhile, everyone loves her. I saw her on Jimmy Fallon a few weeks back. You're my favorite person in the world. Of course, Jimmy Fallon says that to everyone. But, uh, I mean, everyone loves her. Now, I, I say this neither to exalt nor to certainly offend Carrie Underwood. She may or may not have the ability to handle the, the life of a prosperous Christian. But I'm holding her up as an example of, yeah, I want that. Guy or gal, whatever, you, whatever gender you are, that's the kind of thing I want. Wealthy, prosperous people like me. My life partner also has, shares the same values and they're beautiful. Wear good clothing. And I still worship Jesus. I just want that both. The Carrie Underwood Christian life. My question for you is, what has an increase in treasure, the recognition of talent for which many of you are in Grand Cayman, and more leisure time done to you? What has it done for you, I should say? Has your heart enlarged towards God? Have you grown in your generosity towards others? Or have you slowly become closed-fisted? Just slowly, almost without recognition, more closed-fisted and self-centered with your life. Be honest. And the dilemma you're going to have is you're going to want to blame this closed-fistedness, this hard-heartedness, this self-centeredness on something else. You're going to say, no, 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 Ryan, I just need to be more disciplined. I just need to get my marriage back on track. I just need to make Jesus and church a bigger priority. That's the problem because no one wants to say the other thing. We say, please, God, don't take away the extra treasure, the extra talents, the extra leisure time that I hoard and keep back for myself. I'll fix something else. Just don't make me give up that. How do you know, though? How do you know that you struggle with this, that you are not yet ready to handle prosperity? You know, David's prosperity problems provide a helpful template, a helpful diagnostic. Let's look back just briefly at his prosperity problems that we just reviewed. Maybe this is one of your issues. That you aim with your career to delegate as much responsibility as possible. We saw this in 2 Samuel 11. Where David, in desire for rest and a desire for ease, he tried to delegate everything out. And it came back to bite him. You want to rest not in God, not in Jesus and what He's done for you, but you rest you want to rest from responsibility, from the hard work of faith, which is hard work, isn't it, to keep going back to God, to rely on him. Maybe you here's a second one, you prize circumstantial peace in your home or in social circles. We saw this in 2 Samuel 13 through 19. And again, I think this is a problem largely for men, if I might say so. We, we just want things to quiet down. We want things to be peaceful. We want there to be no drama. All right, so we kind of like angle for that. We kind of want that. And you can get that with more treasure, with more rest. You can move away from people. You can get your own apartment. You don't have to have a flatmate anymore because you have enough money. By the way, this research shows this is one of the number one reasons why wealthy people are less generous, because they get more isolated, more peace, more loneliness or close-fistedness. Here's a third diagnostic from David's life. You pad your sense of security by counting up your earthly gains. We saw David do this from 1 Chronicles 21. Let me just count up my mind. How much do I have in that bank account? Do I have enough in my pension? Should I invest more? Let me just figure out how, how long I can retire. Can I retire in a nicer place? Can I send my kids to the best school? And you just start to imagine if this is you, Just be honest, you might have, I would say you probably do have a prosperity problem. And I want to plead with many of you, maybe most, maybe all of us, because we live in Grand Cayman, to have the courage to admit, I have a prosperity problem. All right? In fact, just silently, to yourself right now, close your eyes, and maybe you just need to admit that before God. That's the place to start. God, I have a prosperity problem. Now, guys, we can begin we can begin to apply the antidote. Just part three here. Back to David, though, first. After the third time of lives lost due to his own tight-fistedness, his self-service in the midst of affluence, he finally realizes his prosperity problem. So right there on the threshing floor of a man named Ornan, David volunteers for adversity. If you have a Bible, turn briefly, if you would, into First Chronicles 21. We're going to look at this. Grab a Bible. That's going to be on page 302. I know we're starting that a little bit later. Page 302, 1 Chronicles 21. If you use one of the Bibles, that'll be on page 302. Start with me, if you would, in verses 20 and 26. We're going to read through verse 30. David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings, peace offerings, and called on the Lord. The Lord answered him with the fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel to put his sword back in his sheath. All right, so God is relenting from this punishment that David inflicted upon himself. At that time, when David saw the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan and Jebusite, he sacrificed there for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of the Lord, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, chapter 22, verse 1, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. Okay, let me explain a couple things here. First, the tabernacle was the normal place for people of Israel to worship their God. It would be the normal place for David to worship too, except that people kept moving it to the high place. Whenever you see high place in the Old Testament, that's code for... Places where people commit idolatry, where people worship other gods. So people kept moving the tabernacle to a, the high places. and David was afraid. He had seen God's punishment in his life, punishment that he deserved. But now he's like, "I've got to do something about this. It can't keep going back and mingling true worship of God with wealth, opulence, self-service and idolatry, all of which happened in these high places. He would finally acknowledge this problem trying to mingle these things with reliance on God and generosity towards others, so he does something about it. He builds a temple. <laughs> he resolves right then and there to build this temple. Here shall be the house of the Lord. Here, right there. The same spot where he's just endured, he's finally gotten out of this last self-inflicted adversity. Let's build this temple. Read with me, verse 2, chapter 22. We'll go on from there. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel. He said, Stonecutters, cutters, prepare the dressed stones for the building of the house of God. He provided in great quantities iron and other things. Look down to verse 5. Solomon, my son's young. He's going to be inexperienced. The house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent. Fame and glory throughout the lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity. Look how generous he was. Great quantity before his death. Here shall be the house of the Lord, the temple. What a project. David throws himself into a God-sized plan. That's what I want us to see here. In the midst of prosperity, he knows it's going to come again. David throws himself to a God-sized plan. The next months, even years. We'll see this over the next seven chapters of 1 Chronicles. This is what David does. This is how he spends his last years, organizing, encouraging, overcoming obstacles and adversity, finally giving personally towards this effort to build a great house for God, bring great glory and honor to him. David gives away his gold and silver to God's house, chapter 29, verses 3 through 5. He asks if others would give voluntarily having given himself. They do. The people, listen to this, chapter twenty nine, verse nine. The people rejoiced because they had given willingly with a whole heart, following David's example. By the time he finishes with the organization, he can pray for the people, but who am I? Who are my people, God, that I can give as generously as this, that we can give as generously as this. Everything we have comes from you. We've only given back to you what came originally from your hands. Now quickly, listen to Psalm thirty, even turn there if you would. Just quickly turn over there. Psalm 30. It's a little later in the Bible, you'll find it. Psalm 30. This is what David penned. He penned this psalm. I quoted it earlier. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Now, if you notice, what's the title of that psalm? The prescript. Anyone see it? In capital letters. The top of the psalm. What does it say? Someone read it out loud. A song at the dedication of the temple. You see what happened there, guys? It was in this moment when David resolved, I'm gonna immerse myself, throw myself into this great plan, because I have a prosperity problem. I need to rely completely on God in my life. He says it in Psalm 30. As for me, prosperity and ease and the good life only led to self reliance, close-fistedness, and ceasing in generosity. Wish we could spend more time on Psalm 30. We can't. But here's the point: If you and I lived among the people of Uganda, like our mission partners Terrell and Amber Schrock, distrusted by their home country, not able to return there because their daughters and they adopted, would be aliens to that country. If we lived in places hostile to Christianity, even impoverished places and cities, you may have come from. Sovereign adversity might be sufficient to drive you back to dependence on Jesus. And indeed, that might be part of your story. But you live in Grand Cayman. That's the reality, guys. Adversity is almost always here self-inflicted. Ease, opulence, indulgence, we bring it on ourselves, don't we? So here's the antidote in a nutshell. Most of us require participating in a God-sized plan. Most of us need God-sized plans to provide us the adversity we need to rely on God and stay generous with others. Big plans, God-sized plans, both with people in the church and with the entire church body to steep ourselves in them. Because otherwise, what happens? The human heart turns inward. We want to serve ourselves with there's lots of affluence that with which we want to have along with the good Christian life. A.W. Tozer said it so well. God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity we plan Only things we can do ourselves. Small plans, puny plans. God-sized plans not only bring glory to God, but they do us great good. Especially for those living amongst affluence and ease. Let me give you a few ideas for how to do this. Number one, a dear woman in our community group mentioned it this week. She serves with the two-year-olds on Sundays and mentioned how hard that is for her. That is a God-sized plan for her. Maybe it's giving up your Friday evenings to start a Georgetown Primary School. And then, why not partner with a friend and say, my goal is to actually get to know not only this kid who's at risk, but also their family. What a great plan that would be. A God-sized plan. Something you can't do on your own. You'd fail on your own. It might include inviting everyone on your row of condos or on your street over for dinner between now and summer. That's a God-sized plan for hospitality, isn't it? to stay generous, to rely on Him. God, I don't want to do this tonight. Listing the top three or four things you spend money on and finding a way to cut back so you can be more generous towards God. Maybe it's getting baptized. You know, standing out on that beach before God's family on a public beach and declaring what Jesus has done for you. For many people, that's a God-sized plan. That's a big deal. Especially when you're a little kid like we're going to see today. And if you're still unsure, Sunrise Leadership and a group... A select group of commanding members of our church have put together something special for this upcoming Good Friday. To step into a God-sized plan as a church. To rely on Him. And so be generous with others. Good Friday is a date on the church calendar and on our public calendar for us to think on Jesus' death on our behalf. And often what we do is we ask people to come to us. This year the Holy Spirit challenged me what if we were to take up our own cross to die to self and go to others to show Christ, to show death to self and Christ in us to others that resonated with leadership and all the way down through about the eight to ten commandians in our church whom I consulted. Guys, one quarter of our fair island gathers at very specific locations all over this island on Easter weekend starting with Good Friday. Actually, Monday, Thursday. And I want to serve them. Show Christ to them. So I want to introduce you to a God-sized plan. It's called Give an Unconditionally Good Friday. Give an Unconditionally Good Friday. We're going to go to them, go to people camping, and give them a taste of no-strings-attached, unconditional love like we've experienced through Christ. Meanwhile, you're going to get trained to have gospel conversations in a low-pressure environment. It's lower pressure because you get to go with a group, you get to go with support, you get to go with a tool to learn how to have gospel conversations. High support, but also risk. That tool, after much consultation, mosquito wipes. That's right, I said it, mosquito wipes. Those little wipes, because campers often forget two things we found. Ice, which is wholly impractical to bring to lots of people. And mosquito spray, which usually gets in people's eyes. Solution, mosquito wipes. Those family size, we're going to give one to every tent. A pack of family wipes to every tent. It has a little God loves you, no strings attached sticker on it with Sunrise's website. And you get to say that to people. We're going to assemble into six teams of at least eight people and go to others. Is it going to be hard? Probably. Is it a little bit loco? Sure. All right? But is it a God-sized plan? Absolutely. Putting yourself out there to show people the love of Jesus in a way that's tangible, in a way that's thoughtful, in a way that's just not canned. Let's remember Jesus, our gift and our example, who set his face toward Jerusalem and laid down his own life. A lot of people say, well, it's not Jesus' fault. It was all those mean people who put him to death. Or it was even God the Father's fault because he had this plan for him. But what does Jesus say? He participated in it willingly. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I will take it up again. Willingly throw yourselves, guys, to a God-sized plan to provide the diversity you need to rely on Jesus and stay generous towards others. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you so much for going through the life of David in about 35 minutes. We're grateful that he wrote towards the end of his life. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. That he was bold enough and vulnerable enough to share that in the Psalms with God's people and so with us. God, so many of us here, we say in our prosperity, I'm fine. I'm good. I can't be moved. And so we inflict ourselves in so many sins. Father, just being self-indulgent, not being generous in the workplace, not being generous in our home, not being generous towards you. Father, help us put that kind of affliction aside, that kind of adversity aside, self-inflicted adversity. Instead, throw ourselves into God-sized plans with built-in adversity, that we might rely on you and do something great for you by being generous with others. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.